not really interested in an answer from everybody at this point in time, but I am asking us to contemplate the, the proposed question that I'm about to ask. How grateful, and I mean like legitimately, how grateful are we to be in a place that celebrates the dynamic diversity that exists in the body of Christ? As I personally just reflect on the past couple of months, I could reflect on the last year, but let's just talk about the past couple of months. I find myself legitimately grateful, and I'm using that term with specificity, grateful that we've had the opportunity to be led in the act of worship in the form of singing by individuals, different individuals, people like Ethan, Kirsten, Marcy, Jess, supported by Isaac as he plays the hand drum. We gather, we sing songs of praise to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And let's not forget that not too long ago, while Kirsten was in Homer and while Ethan was with his family on vacation, God provided for us a worship leader who existed outside of the body. And he's done that on two different, uh, two different occasions. He's used the Estelila family, and he's used John Gray. Now, I'm not just talking about the worship team as it exists in functions because we take those things for granted. Every church has a worship team. What I'm actually getting at here is that each of these individuals has had the opportunity to lead us each of them have been created dynamically different, intrinsically and extrinsically. And without fail, they show up, they step up to the plate, and the work that they do is done for the glory of God, and it's done for the joy of the saints who have decided to faithfully gather for Sunday morning services. Gratefulness is what we're after here. And I'm wondering if we find ourselves grateful what about the preaching and the teaching? I mean, if we just pause for a moment, we can probably all recall a list of names. Brent Dunlap, Tommy Harrison, Trayvon Richhart, Ethan Reyna, Dr. Jeff Anderson, and the list goes on. And that's just the meat of the preaching and teaching that's come from the pulpit. How about we open the scope up and we talk about communion messages, giving and focus messages, or mixtape messages? Well, if we open the scope up, then we've heard from people like Gabby Eyed and James Prim. Ruth Frost, you encouraged us last week by challenging us to take repentance seriously before approaching the Lord's table. We've heard from married couples like Jason and Jen Reed who are back with us from their vacation. We pray that your time was a time of refreshing. This morning, we just heard from Art. Each person different from the next. Yet without fail, the gospel continues to go out in power. And this is week after week. This is not an isolated incidence here at this church. This is week after week. I don't know about you, but if I pause and I reflect on that reality, I find myself grateful. We haven't even scratched the surface. The fact that we only give a love offering for this building. That all of the things that you see that changed were fully funded by another body. That a group of founding families came together and invested time by praying and strategizing. And the attendees have showed up to participate as well. God has done supernatural things to produce this family. 
And we need to be grateful. Are we grateful? I believe it's safe to say that we are a reflection of what it is that we read in the text of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, the many parts make up only one body when they are all put together. And Peter echoes these words when he says, we have become living stones, living building stones for God's use in building His house. What's more, Peter writes, we are His holy priests, so come to Him. What a word of encouragement. Come to God. You who are acceptable to Him because of who? Because of Jesus Christ. And offer to God the things that please Him. Do we offer hearts of gratefulness to God? Because hearts of gratefulness are one of the many things that please God. Or do we sit back and do we so easily forget all of the things that God has accomplished because something isn't going the way we want it to go? Because we're faced with a trial. Are we faced with a real trial or are we creating a trial in our minds? Just because things that aren't preferential to us aren't actually happening. Gratefulness should transcend all of that. Gratefulness should anchor us in all of the things that God has faithfully done in our body right here. And if we refuse to be grateful, shame on us. Because God has already done everything that we require or need and he's inviting us into the process of imaging him well i believe that god is grateful therefore i believe that we should be grateful amen amen i love being in a body that celebrates diversity a body that collectively is united on the fact that we were created by god that we were made for God, and one day in the future we will return to God. There's no better place to be than in a community like that. That's the foundation for everything that happens here at AC Squared. That's the motivation. That gives, that's the motivation that gives birth to everything we accomplish here in this body. Hearts of gratefulness. Let's bow in a word of prayer as we prepare to approach the text of Scripture this morning. Father, thank You for all that You have accomplished, all that You are currently doing, and all that You will do in the future, Lord. We stand humbly before You saying, how is it that we're even here? Because moves of men don't accomplish the things that have got us where we are. And so we give You the glory and the honor and the praise for all of it while we simultaneously take up what it is that you've called us to be responsible for and we walk worthy of the call that you've put on our lives. God, help us to be the people that you created us to be. I pray that your spirit would use this Bible study this morning, Lord, to sharpen us, to challenge us, to inspire us for your greater good, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in week three. We're in week three on our study in 1 Peter. Week one, we tackled the introduction to the letter. I want to be clear, it wasn't the introduction of the letter. We're still in that. In week one, we tackled the introduction to the letter, which is where we unpacked all of the historical context 
so that we could understand the mind of the author and the mind of the audience. Week two, last week, Tommy told me that we bit off a, uh, a bear's load, I think is what he said. <laughs> That's not a human uh, portion. <laughs> and we only talked about two verses. But the application that we were supposed to walk away with last week in our lives, if we were listening, was be holy in the lives that we live. Why? Because God is holy and the God who is holy and set apart has called us to be holy and set apart. So live lives that are wholly consecrated to Him. That was the application portion of last week's sermon. And we also tackled a very deep theological point. We unpacked a doctrinal point. And we said, we, specifically I said me, it's my responsibility to parse terminology like election and salvation because in my mind they're not the same thing. And I believe that I laid out a case for why that is true. We held in tension the reality that the election of God's chosen people and the foreknowledge that God has is not interdependent on predestination. And we prove that from the text. God's election of people in His foreknowledge can work with predestination. We said that. But it's not required to work with predestination. And we prove that from the text. So we were parsing terminology. So those were the two big takeaways from last week. And now we're in week three. Week three in our sermon series on 1 Peter. And we're coming to the text this morning and we're reading verse 3 through verse 12. We're going to take it from the ESV this morning. It reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that persists, that, uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what persons or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So like I said, we're in week three in our study on 1 Peter. We're still dealing with the introduction. 
And the introduction to the letter continues with what is in the Greek language a long single sentence. If anyone showed up to school and turned in this to their English teacher, they would receive an F. (laughs) A long running sentence in the Greek language. It takes us from verse 3 to the end of verse 12. Ten verses. Which renders this entire section a declaration of and an elaboration on God's mercy. So if we were to push pause, take a step back, and just put all ten verses up on the screen and just sit and meditate on the words that we saw, general observations should be that the Apostle Peter is focused on declaring that the God of the universe is merciful. Amen? He wouldn't stop at just declaring that he would go on to elaborate how God has sovereignly decided to enact His mercy to the whole of humanity. So that's what Peter's doing in this section of the text. Now having discovered that the original manuscripts show us in the Greek language that this is one long running sentence. I think in my research, if I remember correctly, it's like 175 words in the Greek language. By my knowledge, I think that In Ephesians chapter 1, that's the only longer-running sentence in the whole of the New Testament. So when we stumble across data like this, it begs the question, do we have to tackle this portion of the text in its entirety because the author wrote nonstop? Praise God, the answer is no. (laughs) We'd be here for the full day. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner helps us, the modern student, to understand that this section of the text, although in the Greek language is one long running sentence, it actually can be broken down into three subsections. So today, our goal is to tackle verse 3 through 5. Next week, we'll work with 6 through 9, and the following week, we'll work 10 through 12. Verse 3 through 5. Verse 3 through 5 focuses on the end-time inheritance that belongs to believers. What we in the church universal commonly refer to as salvation. Verse 6-9 through spotlights the reality, and listen to this because this is important. Peter's thrust in 6-9 through is that both knowledge and understanding of one's future inheritance can and will produce joy in the lives of all believers while they experienced the difficulties and sufferings of the present age. Art, I don't think your message could have been any more timely. We could test this claim. How many of us believe, raise your hand if you believe the trials we face are absolutely meaningless? Not a single person in the house? Okay. Raise your hand high. If you trust that God is actually producing something in you through experiencing life's trials. 100%. This is what Paul says in his letter is Christ producing in us through the work of the Spirit the eternal weight of glory. What we lack. Either we gain it by God just supernaturally endowing us with it or we live life. (laughs) Those are your options. And guess what? Most often, God will require us to just live life. 
Finally, when we come to verse 10 through 12, we'll see that it teaches us that we should be eternally grateful, that we live life every day in the age of the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises regarding not only the coming of Christ, but his subsequent sufferings and his glory. What do we mean when we talk about his subsequent sufferings and his glory? We're talking about his life in which he suffered, his death in which he suffered. Subsequent glory would be the resurrection, the glorious resurrection, where he received the firstborn among many brothers, the resurrection body. What we look forward to having. Not just the resurrection, though. We're talking about his ability to reveal himself to more than 500 witnesses. His ability to ascend through the atmosphere, to be seated at the right hand of God, and to currently mediate and intercede for all of humanity. Schreiner goes on to say that believers will praise God when they realize their privileged position in salvation history. And I couldn't agree with them more. Praise God that we were born during the days of the covenant of grace and not under the law. Praise God that what the prophets and the kings searched after and longed for according to what Christ said in the Gospels has been made plain to us in the person, word, and work of Jesus Christ, the man from Nazareth. All mysteries have not only been fulfilled, but they've been revealed in Christ. So we are privileged to be on this side of the cross, and we should praise God. We should be grateful for that reality. So today's goal is to tackle verse 3 through 5. 3 through 5. I need you guys to read this out loud for me, please. interesting you know I've got to tell you that we didn't plan for Art to speak his word this morning he actually wrote it I think now months ago and his work schedule was so crazy that this was the week that it worked out that he would give it so I'm here to echo Art's words if you woke up this morning in a state of hopelessness maybe you're feeling like today, you don't even have the energy to begin to articulate the message of the Gospel. Maybe feeling like standing firm or holding fast to the truth of God's Word for you right now is a foreign desire. Imagining somehow that God has forsaken you. Maybe right now, you're so distracted that you can't even hear the words that I'm saying because you're wondering when your current trial is going to end. Believing that you may not have what it takes to live another day for the sake of His name. If that's you, then I've got to tell you that you're in the right place at the right time this morning and that God has you right where He needs you. The Creator, the Sustainer, the Giver of life has you right where He wants you. 
The question is, are our hearts in a position of submission? That's the question, really. Did we show up today to check the box, or are our hearts in a position of submission? Are we ready to receive whatever it may be, small or big, that God has prepared for us today? Remember that the letter of 1 Peter functions as a word of encouragement to suffering Christians who lived in the first century in Asia Minor. Which means that if Peter wrote the letter to function as a letter of encouragement then, it still holds the same function today. It's supposed to function as a word of encouragement for us today. So if you're looking for a word of encouragement, you're in the right place. This is why we talk so frequently about the Word of God being written to them but for us. Because Peter's intentions then for the people of God under the inspiration of the Spirit, the purpose of his letter has not shifted somehow to talk or speak to us today. It still holds the same function. When we look at this portion of the text, we observe the Apostle Peter offering up a prayer of praise. The $20 word for a prayer of praise is doxology. They say, good theology gives birth to great doxology. That's what they say. The Apostle Peter is offering up a prayer of praise to the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. Blessed be God! So I've got to ask, AC squared, regardless of the current circumstances of life, regardless of the current state of our own minds, whatever it is that we're going through, are we, like Peter, committed to praising God in the midst of the storm? We know that Peter was suffering. Look at the end of the letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, to the churches in dispersion, the suffering that you're experiencing is happening worldwide within the brotherhood. So it's not unique to you. So Peter was suffering. And he's committed to high praise, doxology in the midst of the trial. What's going to happen to us this morning when we take a hard look at verse 3 and 5? Are we going to submit and embrace the truth claims of the apostle? Or are we going to rebel against and reject his words of encouragement? Those are our two options, church. Nobody can make the decision for you. Either we're going to submit to the truth of God's Word or we're going to rebel against and reject it. There's no middle ground. Building. Building on the foundation of what was laid over the past two weeks, I'd like to point out that Peter's doxology is rooted in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember, we're still in the introduction. New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards reminds us that Peter's prayer of praise, his doxology, is not a byproduct of the writings of Dr. Luke or the Apostle Paul. He argues that Peter's inspiration is the Greek Old Testament. So once again, just like in the last two weeks, we have to ask ourselves this week, can we prove this claim? Is the introduction of Peter continually grounded in the text of the Old Testament? Even if we can prove this claim, we have to ask ourselves, what type of encouragement does that have to offer me in my life today? Because they're two different questions. 
So let's tackle the first question. Can we substantiate the claim that Peter's introduction is continually grounded in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures? And if so, let's see what encouragement we can extrapolate from it. Next slide, please. Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, Ethan, where are you at, dog? He disappeared on me. He was sitting right there. He just preached on this portion of the text in the last month or so. So our body should be familiar with this portion of the narrative. Well, we know that in this portion of the narrative, Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. Why? He's blessing Abraham because God is merciful. How do we know that God is merciful? Because he has delivered the enemies who took Lot, his family, and his possessions, and all the people of Sodom, and kidnapped them to enslave them to serve their people. And Abram was like, not having it. So this is seeped in the mercy of God, and it gives a doxology of prayer and praise to God. Blessed be God most high. Could this be Peter's foundation for what he's writing in the New Testament? Let's go to the next slide. Genesis chapter 24, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. The grace and mercy of God is all over this. God's steadfast love, the fact that he would not forsake his faithfulness. If you know this story, if you're doing the Bible in a year, the reading plan that this body is doing together, if you're participating in that, you would have read this chapter during this last week, which means it would be fresh in your mind. And you would know that Abraham tasked his chief servant, I believe his name is Eliezer, to find Isaac a wife. And by the grace and mercy of God, he's able to accomplish the mission. And what does he do when he, when he accomplishes just the initial stage of the mission? He offers a doxological prayer of praise to Yahweh, the God of his master Abraham. Could this be what Peter's drawing on as he writes 1 Peter? Next slide. Exodus chapter 18, verse 10. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. This is bathed in the mercy of God who has delivered Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and the unrighteous rule of Pharaoh. Now, Jethro's a Gentile and Moses has literally just finished telling him all of the signs and wonders that God accomplished to bring Israel out of Egypt to rescue, redeem, and ultimately reconcile Israel to be a people of his own. That's the mercy of God on display. Doxological prayer of praise. Blessed be the Lord. Last one, we're going to look at Ruth because we just finished doing our study in Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Look, Naomi believed that she was cursed by God. She walks through the gate of the city in chapter 1 and tells people, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter, for the Lord has turned his face against me. Now check this out. The same women who heard her in chapter 1 are now reminding her in chapter 4 that Yahweh has not left her without a redeemer. 
That's an act of mercy. A baby by the name of Obed to perpetuate the name of Elimelech so that the land, so that the name would not be cut off from the land of the living. That's the mercy of God. Now what Naomi didn't know and what Ruth and Boaz didn't know was that the near view fulfillment was the baby Obed. The far view fulfillment, what we know on this side of the cross, was David and ultimately Jesus. The pre-Messianic figure and the actual Messiah. So I think it's safe to say that we've proved our claim that Peter's inspiration for his doxological prayer of praise can be grounded in the Hebrew Scriptures. So when we come to passages like this in the epistles, we need to slow down. We need to consider that the history of Israel is the motivation for the authors of the New Testament. Now we also need to dedicate time to do this because at AC Squared, we have a deep desire to distance ourselves from ultra-liberal theology. We are not going to kowtow to those who bow to culture and we're not going to kowtow to liberal theologians. We're going to say you're more than welcome to believe what you believe, but here's why we believe what we believe. Now why is this important? Here comes the word of encouragement. Because liberal theologians are going to say that Peter could not have wrote this letter. They're going to say that he's interdependent on the Pauline corpus, and he's interdependent on Dr. Luke's writings of the, of, of the, the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And we're going to say, no, he's not. He's dependent on the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that was given to him at Pentecost. He's dependent on the gift of his life and his experience with Jesus the Messiah as he worked with him for three years. And he's dependent on the Hebrew Scriptures and the Second Temple history. Period. And we'll take him to the Bible and we'll prove it. This is encouraging, church, because we're not wrong. And this means that the liberal theologians are not right. So what are we going to do? Are we going to stand firm or are we going to bow down? That's right. We're going to stand firm. We're going to be gracious and patient and kind. And we're going to trust that God is going to use us to change them as we fight for the truth. The same way He changed us when we were dead in our trespasses. He can do that because that's what He's in the business of doing. Now another thing we want to spotlight in verse 3 is the new birth. I.e. being born again. However, when we look at the new birth, being born again, what should stand out to us is the fact that Peter's not focused on the past. He's not. Peter's focus is not the new birth itself. Peter's focus is the future, for the goal of this new birth is a living hope, a future reality for those of us who choose to remain loyal. All of this, all of what I'm saying comes into focus when we read verse 3 in the immediate context of verse 4 and 5. Blessed be the Lord, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Future. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's not on this earth. It's a future tense that he's speaking of. By, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when? Peter's focus is the future. 
New Testament scholar Daryl Charles writes that a realization, a mental realization, and a heart realization on the basis of our living hope, that will have its effect on both how the saints embrace the suffering that comes their way and their standard of context before the, the world that's watching their lives unfold. It will do both. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Church, we need to get our eyes off the past. Some of us need to shift our focus from a prayer that was prayed so long ago at the altar when you heard the gospel and the preacher man called you down. Never forget it. But get your focus off of it. We need to begin to live for God in the present with our eyes focused on the future. I use this example all the time when I talk to the men. My wife could care less about what it was that I told her at the altar eight years ago. She could care less that I said, for better or worse. She's interested in what I'm doing right now. Right now. Because eight years ago, what I said doesn't make a difference if my life doesn't match what I said in the moment. It's the same covenant relationship that we have been invited to with God. Paul talks very deeply about how marriage is the reflection of God's relationship with humanity in Ephesians. So I'm not making this stuff up. We need to get our eyes off the past. We need to live for God in the present and our eyes need to be focused on the future. Run the race that has been set before you with what? With eyes fixed on the prize. Laying aside every weight, another New Testament author would say. This is a consistent message through and through in the text of Scripture. The salvation that infuses the believer with hope. And listen to me, the salvation that infuses us, it gives us hope, amen? It's not only evidenced by the new birth that lies in the past, it is also an inheritance that is future in scope. It's an inheritance that is kept in heaven, i.e. it's being reserved for us by God. Peter's focus is the future. The idea of inheritance is rooted in the divine promise of land which Yahweh made to Abraham and his offspring. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham never set one foot in the land, but he believed the promise, which means that even to Abraham, inheritance was future tense. However, like the land promised to Israel, occupied by the people of Israel, but now lost to the nation, this inheritance, our inheritance, is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. Joel B. Green writes that the identity of God's people will no longer be tied to a geophysical location. Neither will our hope be oriented toward restoration of the land because one day the elements are going to cease to exist and God will bring a new Jerusalem down from heaven for us to live in. Amen? So we're not focused on the past promise of land. We're focused on what, church? The future. I absolutely love the words of William Barclay who writes, What then is the wonderful inheritance of the reborn Christian? 
Again, my wife is like bewitched by this question. What's heaven going to be like, Matt? And I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) Who cares what it's going to be like? And she's like, but it's important. This is why I love the words of William Barclay. I learned so much after reading him this week. He answers to this question, there may be many secondary answers. So Callan is justified in her wandering because there are many plausible secondary answers. However, Barclay says there's one primary answer. One primary answer. The inheritance of the Christian is God himself. And that has to be enough. This statement which William Barclay makes is founded in the truth claim that we find in the Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion, and my cup you hold my lot. These lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful what? Praise God. Future tense for the psalmist. Future tense for the New Testament writer in the epistle and his original audience. Future tense for us, church. If we were coming on Wednesday nights and listening to the amazing teaching of Tommy as he teaches us how to interpret the text of Scripture, we would look at this, right, Marty? And we would say, this is developmental parallelism. What we learned about on Wednesday night, I think three weeks ago, as Tommy was teaching us. We would say, line A in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion. And that the author develops this reality in line B, verse 6, when he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. Line B develops the idea of line A. The, The beautiful inheritance we have is that which is stated in line A. It is Yahweh. He is my portion. Developmental parallelism. This is how we read poetic uh, writings in the text of Scripture. Peter would know this stuff. This would be part of his DNA, which begs the question, is it part of our DNA? It should be. The primary answer to the question that we're in search of the answer of is that the inheritance of the Christian is God Himself. It's a beautiful reality that is inescapable. Who cares what heaven's going to be like? That's interesting to talk about. Those are secondary concerns. The primary concern is that God is my inheritance. This is why Peter is confident to write in 1 Peter, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers The flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The living hope of all who believe is Christ alone. Christ is the Logos, the living word of God. He is our inheritance. Amen? AC squared. If we have an underdeveloped theology, and it's okay to have an underdeveloped theology, as long as you're desiring to develop the underdeveloped theology. But if we remain in a state of underdeveloped theology in regard to what it is that God has in store for us in the future, we may run the risk of exchanging the gift giver for the gift. That would be cosmic treason. So God forbid we do that because that's exactly what Israel did. They took the promised land and the covenant and they said we no longer need Yahweh, we have what we need. 
God said, really? Sent him into exile. The divine wrath and justice of God was poured out on his elect. Which is why we said last week, to be the elect of God is not immunity from the divine wrath that God will express in a righteous way. And we'll look to the text to offer examples. If you believe that the elect is a free pass on God's wrath, read the Old Testament. We cannot exist in a state of underdeveloped theology, which is why the participation in the fellowship of the saints is so vital, because we cannot discover the truth on our own. There's no such thing as a lone wolf in Christianity. So God forbid we recapitulate the same mistake that Israel made and we exchange the gift giver for the gift. We will not do that. In our study last week, we took the time to look at covenantal language in Deuteronomy. We did this exhaustively. Which means that we're all aware that inheritance rightly belongs to the obedient. Obedience gives way to blessing. Disobedience gives way to cursing. If you do not obey me, all the curses, they'll be poured out on you. And just as the, lo- as the land vomited out those who preexisted you, it will vomit you out. Blessing and cursing. It's interdependent on our obedience because God has faithfully communicated all that we need for life and godliness. This is exactly what Peter will say in his letter. The covenantal language of Deuteronomy had its effect in the past. The covenantal language of Deuteronomy has its effect on the here and now as much as it will have its effect in the judgment to come. Peter says in chapter 5, I believe, that the church will be judged first. And he says that those who are righteous in Christ are barely being saved. What hope is there for those who, are at, uh, who, who have rejected God? These are strong words. There's no way to escape what it is that the apostle is after because he's after the future reality. In the letter of 1 Peter, all believers are kept by loyal trust. That is, by their status as authentic believers who make the conscious decision not to turn from the faith and live as apostates. If apostasy is a real thing, then you can actually turn from God. Again, we could argue all of this as it comes into focus when we read the text in its proper context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We need to read this line in verse 5 very carefully. Very carefully. Church, we have a responsibility. When we come to portions of the text like this, I almost want to say beware. Don't read too much into what Peter is saying. Also, don't be negligent and not read enough into it. And that's a fine line to walk. 
You know, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg writes that the complementary nature of God's sovereignty and human perseverance emerges in characteristic biblical form with God's power shielding believers as they simultaneously continue to exercise faith in him. You need two things to fight, a shield and a sword of truth. He shields and we fight. right there in verse 5. It blew my mind, and I'm talking about it in a good way, right? It blew my mind when I read what, what it was that Thomas Schreiner had to write on this portion of the text. I highlighted, a, I highlighted a pretty drastic disagreement last week in how we approach the text and exercise our hermeneutic, and I also highlighted a point of agreement that I held with Thomas Schreiner. This week, it seems like we have full agreement he writes that the text does not merely say that believers are protected by God to receive salvation. Peter adds that believers are protected through faith. Diapistos. Through faith. Which means that human beings must not be perceived as mere automatons in the ongoing process of life. You know what it means if we're not mere automatons? It means that some things may have been predestined, but not all things have been predetermined because God is giving us a choice in the matter. And you only have a choice if behind the choice lies two different backdrops. Otherwise, it's coercion and you're just unaware of it. So yes, Mr. Thomas Schreiner is correct. We are not mere automatons in the ongoing process of life. As followers of Christ, believers are required to exercise faith to receive the final salvation. Faith in this context is to be understood as continuing trust or faithfulness. Schreiner goes on to say that Peter never conceived of faith as a single isolated act. We need to hear that, church. Faith is never co-signed to a single act. Genuine faith must persist until the day of redemption. So pastors, preachers, and teachers should never use 1 Peter chapter 5 to deny that believers must maintain their faith until the end. We are not mere automatons. As modern students of the text, we have to begin to realize that it's our duty to hold the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity in its proper textual tension because the tension exists. And that tension exists in the text. And the text is our greatest authority because it's the clearest revelation of God's character and His nature and His will for us, His vice-regents. Which means that we have to talk about this whenever the text addresses it. We have to. We're not going to skip it or we're not going to deal with it and we're not going to try to please everyone. We're going to be text-driven people. Dr. Keener reminds us that the Apostle Peter in his writings, requires perseverance. And this perseverance occurs through believers remaining loyal. That is through continued faith rather than apostasy. Saints, that means we have one question left to ask this morning. One question left to ask. What is it that we long to hear on the day that the Master returns? I can tell you what it is that I want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done. That means that you did something. Good and faithful. That means that the creator and sustainer of life is saying that you were faithful to the covenant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over this much. I will make you faithful over this much. Enter into the joy of your master. God is, is going to reward the faithful, which means I want rewards. I want the one who spoke all of this into its existence to reward me so that I can lay my rewards back down at his feet and give him even more glory and honor and praise. I'm not interested in it for the credit, but he's giving me the credit because he's rewarding me. And I'm saying, no, Lord, it's of you. It's a covenant faithful relationship. Two parties interested in achieving the same goal. All of this, everything that we're talking about, by the way, it's been made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why it's central to this section of the long-running Greek sentence. Peter's a genius when he puts the, hint, the linchpin in the center of this portion of the text. The linchpin for Christianity is the resurrection. That's it. If Christ wasn't raised... We're a pitiful people. One cannot be born again to a living hope apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it logically follows that one cannot put their hope in a future resurrection, uh, in, in, in a future inheritance if Christ has not been raised from the dead. However, we know and believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So it logically follows that because Christ has been raised from the dead, our salvation, whether in its past, present, or future manifestation, it's been guaranteed by the finished work of Christ. So we have a guarantee. And that's what Christ accomplished, praise God. This is why we're not preaching a man-centered gospel here. We're preaching a text centered gospel in its context and we're saying that God has done everything that would be required of him now it's on us he's given us his spirit we can't say that we don't have what it takes to do what's necessary Christians have one goal. Believers in God have one goal. There's one primary goal, and there are many secondaries, we could say. The primary goal of the believer is to remain loyal. Earlier this morning, I made the statement that if you were struggling, I was confident that God had you right where he needed you. In all honesty, we all needed to hear that. Because we are all facing trials of various nature. And just because one's trial outweighs another doesn't mean that any of the trials should be marginalized. 
everyone's trial is a real trial. We all needed to hear that we were right where God needed us. When the trials of this life have got us up against the ropes, we need to remember that like Peter, it's our responsibility to praise God in the storm, to offer a doxological prayer of praise. Blessed be God. Peter was suffering. We already confirmed that. The sufferings that you're experiencing in Asia in Bithynia, in Galatia, in Cappadocia. And what's the other one? In Bithynia. Did I already say that? Bithynia, Asia, Cappadocia, Galatia, Pontus and Pontus. The five Roman provinces, right? If there's people suffering in the five Roman provinces in Asia Minor, Peter says it's safe to say that the entire church body is suffering because the suffering is being experienced all over the world. So Peter was suffering, and he wrote this doxological prayer of praise. The church in Asia Minor was suffering, and the only proper response was doxology. That's it. The only proper response in the midst of a trial is doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, do we pray like this? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When life's not going the way that I want it to go with my wife, do I get on my knees and say these things or do I say, God, fix that stupid woman? <laughs> oh, you guys laugh like you don't think those things about your wives. <laughs> fix me, Father, because I've been born again and I have a living hope. And it's been guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If I'm not on my knees praying this when I'm in a trial, shame on me. I have an inheritance. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's not the land, Lord. It's you. And you are unfading. You will never be blemished. You exist eternally. And you've called me to live in your presence. That is enough, Father. When I see you, I will be made like you, for I shall see you as you are. That is enough. Do I pray that when I'm facing a trial? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God, you are guarding me. And because you are guarding me, give me the energy that I need so that I can live a life that is worthy of the call that you've placed on it. And then get up and do it. Because we can. Deep, healthy theology gives birth to prayers of praise and high doxology. And Peter is our chief example. Listen to me. We're going to close with this thought. For the nation of Israel, salvation was past in that they had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt. Well, guess what, church? We've been delivered from our bondage. Christ set us free from the power and the penalty of sin. We long for the day when we will be free from its presence, but we can say today that we are no longer slaves. Salvation for Israel was present in their exilic wanderings, whether when they were in the, for, in the wilderness for 40 years, in the Babylonian exile, or during the Second Temple period, when the known powers who were trying to conquer the world were pushing them to the right and the left of their land. Well, guess what? 
God was present with Israel in their wanderings. He's present with us as we sojourn through this life. Salvation for Israel is also future. Based on the hope of blessing predicated on faithful obedience to Yahweh's commands. And guess what, church? Same for us. Our future inheritance, the one being kept in heaven for us, is predicated on the same standard, faithful obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one truth claim that we must never lose sight of, and it's this. The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So just as Peter was encouraging the church then, I want to encourage us now. Let go of the past. Rest in the mercy of God. And stay focused on the reality that our future inheritance is being kept by God for all who choose to remain loyal. Father, we thank you for your word. For the doxology of the apostle who has laid a foundation for us so that we now know how to pray when we experience a trial. You have not left us, Father. In this life, we will experience things that are beyond our capacity. But with every trial and temptation, you provide a way of escape. So it is our job to fight to make it to the escape hatch. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, which is on display in these verses, we look forward to next week as we learn more about you and how you have equipped the church to do the work. We love what you're doing, God, and we ask that we would humbly repent and then do more because we want to hear when we stand before you when, we return, when you return, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I will give you responsibility over much. Enter into your rest, the joy of your master. Father, we thank you for the truth of the text and we pray that you would just use the truth of the text and the power of your spirit to change and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.